On this feast of all saints, many in our congregations will be worshiping remotely, singing the hymns through tears as they remember all they've lost. With the pandemic, social isolation, and the bitter divisions fracturing our public life, many feel like they're alone in a grim, apocalyptic landscape. That's the Reverend Dr. Carolyn Sharp, and today she offers a life-giving message of faith entitled, Witnesses to the Kingdom. I'm Peter Wallace, and this is Day One. Welcome to Day One, the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's historic Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. In 1945, we began broadcasting every week as the Protestant Hour, and since 2002, as Day One. In 2020, we proudly celebrate 75 years of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ around the world. Now, here's your host, Peter Wallace, to introduce today's preacher. Thank you, Sherry. Today on Day One, we're delighted to welcome the Reverend Dr. Carolyn J. Sharp a biblical scholar and professor of homiletics at Yale Divinity School in New Haven, Connecticut, where she has served for 20 years, formerly as professor of Hebrew scriptures. An Episcopal priest, Carolyn preaches and presides regularly at St. John's Episcopal Church in Essex, Connecticut. A graduate of Wesleyan University, she earned a Master of Arts in Religion from Yale Divinity School and a Ph.D. in Hebrew Bible from Yale University. She is the author of a commentary on Joshua, and has edited or co-edited six books, including The Oxford Handbook of the Prophets. Carolyn, welcome to Day One. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You've been on the faculty of Yale Divinity School now for two decades, but it's been an interesting journey for you. In fact, you were the first woman to be tenured in Hebrew Bible in the history of Yale Divinity School. First, give us an overview of the school and what makes it distinctive. Yale Divinity School is a marvelous mix of many traditions. Episcopalians are the largest group, but we have many other Protestant denominations represented and Roman Catholics. Hmm. Among us are a few Jewish students and Muslim students and some who are affiliated with no tradition at all Mm -hmm. or are atheist. It's a wonderful mix for teaching and learning, for exploring the holy together. Hmm. Another feature that's amazing is that we have three embedded institutions at Yale Divinity School, each of which enriches our common life of teaching, scholarship, and worship. We have Berkeley Divinity School, which promotes the knowledge and love of Episcopal and Anglican traditions Mm -hmm. and also offers a spiritual direction program for all YDS students. We have Andover Newton at Yale, its congregational heritage and passion for justice, enlivening all of our discourses and helping us to envision the new ways of worship Mm -hmm. that are radically inclusive. And finally, we have the Institute of Sacred Music, such a gift with phenomenal musicians, artists, spoken word performers, and others among us in chapel and among us in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Finally, I would say that the daily worship we enjoy in Marquand Chapel, uh, which is central to the life of the school, really sets Yale Divinity School apart. And there are many other wonderful worship opportunities each week as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. 
For many years, you were a professor of Hebrew scriptures there, but a few years ago, you made this shift to homiletics, preaching. How did that come about for you? Why make that change? Well, I've always been uh, deeply motivated by a love of language, the drama of biblical narrative, the vivid images and striking shifts in biblical Mm. poetry, love irony. I love the power of hortatory speech in the New Testament. Fascinated by the power of language to transform and change, to unsettle, to create new ways of seeing. So being a scholar of the Hebrew scriptures, and especially literary criticism of the Hebrew scriptures, was a life-giving to me. Mm-hmm. I've always been interested in preaching since my first sermon in 1992. Hmm. was very deeply focused on the Hebrew Bible and was going on for the Ph.D., but I have loved preaching for decades. One sunny Saturday morning in 2015, this is when I was already full professor of Hebrew scriptures, I was reading homiletics literature and emailed a homiletics friend about loving it so much I wished I could do it all the time. She emailed back 10 seconds later, why don't you go into homiletics as your field? And I tell you, I was flooded with joy that lasted for hours. I didn't know why, since it seemed utterly impossible and just not done to change your field, Mm -hmm. but the joy persisted. I started working with my dean, who was wonderful, and the provost's office at Yale, and in August 2017, I was officially approved by the faculty dean and provost to become professor of homiletics. Mm. My greatest source of joy in this new change is that I can focus on the Gospels. I love the Gospels, and I love thinking about proclaiming Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And now I have the rest of my life to do that in my day job, as well (laughs) as in my preaching on Sundays. Mm -hmm. Your commentary on Joshua was published last year by Smith and Helways. How, How did you approach that Old Testament historical book? In that commentary, I read Joshua from a post colonial perspective. Mm As those who've read Joshua know, uh, that text is brimming with violence against indigenous Canaanites. And from an ethical perspective as a Christian, I cannot assent Mm -hmm. to the theological claim that God wants the extermination of people Mm -hmm. on this earth. So every time violence is performed in the book of Joshua, what I do is I frame and counter it faithfully, with voices of those harmed. I have a set of sidebars called a Canaanite voice, where I give the reader actual words from Hmm. Canaanite inscriptions, because, of course, Canaanite leaders and others were real people. We have material evidence of them in the archaeological record. Hmm. So I want my readers to hear Canaanite voices. I also have a sidebar series called indigeneity under threat. In this uh, series, I draw from contemporary Native studies to make visible the harms perpetrated against Native Americans Mm -hmm. by European colonizers. Finally, I have a sidebar series for the preacher, drawing from the work of many homileticians, most of whom don't mention Joshua as such, So it was a richly integrative endeavor to reflect on their words about the gospel, about truth in Christ, about defeating the principalities and powers through the grace of God. 
and then to draw conclusions to help my readers resist genocidal ideology. Mm. Finally, there are characters and groups in the book of Joshua that the ancient narrator uses to destabilize us and them, these boundaries between insider and outsider. So I use four of those, Rahab, the malfeasant Achan, the trickster Gibeonites, and the Transjordanian tribes. In all of those texts, Joshua 2, 7, 9, and 22, we see the ancient storyteller working with the complexity of being in relationship with the other. You're now working on some other books with a commentary on Jeremiah chapters 26 to 52 from a feminist perspective at the publisher. So how do you approach that with this lens? Well, biblical texts are saturated with performances of gender and power, just begging to be explored and unpacked by every reader. No text is neutral, and certainly not Jeremiah especially when you look at the Jeremiah prose in 26 to 52, that is exceedingly violent rhetoric, suppressing dissent. There's the serve Babylon and live platform, Hmm. and those who dissent are execrated, are cast out of the community by the rhetoric of Jeremiah and his God. Also, women are almost entirely erased Hmm. from Judah in that book. Hmm. Women come up almost never except in Jeremiah 44, where they are blamed for terrible harms that have come on their community. So I want to engage those aspects of gender and power in Jeremiah. I do that in several different ways. I honor all subjects, and I try to interrogate relations of power in the text, and I seek in my commentary to reform communities gathered around Jeremiah as holy. Hmm. No community should require the obliteration or subjugation of dissenters, so I work with that. I also use Rachel weeping for her children, that remarkable Mm -hmm. image in Jeremiah 31, 15, as a lens throughout my commentary to highlight the trauma and ruin enacted by militarized violence. Rachel weeps not just for her children back in Genesis. This is a venerable foremother weeping for all those harmed and murdered through patriarchal violence. I also then use Evid Melik, the gender nonconforming hero, Ethiopian eunuch, who mm-hmm. rescues Jeremiah from the well in Jeremiah 38. And I use him uh, to invite queer and genderqueer readers to see themselves addressed by the book of mm. Jeremiah and invited then into full participation in the prophetic witness of contemporary communities. I also use 31.22. The Lord has created a new thing on the earth. Female surrounds warrior male. Really perplexing and mysterious verse that has had so many explanations in the history of interpretation. I use that remarkable text to exhort feminist, womanist, and other readers and preachers to be bold in creating a new vision for how God's purposes can be fulfilled. Hmm. Carolyn, you are also an Episcopal priest serving regularly at St. John's Episcopal Church in Essex, Connecticut. How has that been an important part of your overall ministry in life? 
It's important for every preacher to be deeply connected to the life of a congregation, to the struggles and joys, to the teaching moments and challenges that come up for believers in their walk with Christ, in their life in community. Um, I especially value the uh, beautiful opportunities to preside at the Eucharist, Mm -hmm. which for me is an incomparably sacred moment in which Christ is fully present to all those gathered. And I love preaching and teaching uh, Bible in those uh, groups of people so eager to learn more Mm -hmm. about discipleship and to learn about who God is and who Christ is in their lives. So one, as a preacher, is continually nourished, challenged, and broadened in our lived theology through our engagements with church. And St. John's in Essex is a beautiful congregation for me in that regard. Mm. So how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected your teaching at Yale and serving in the church? Well, Yale University is committed to online teaching this semester, which is brand new for Mm -hmm. us. Uh, Yale was dragged kicking and screaming into this. Smaller (laughs) schools have been doing hybrid and fully online courses for many years. Mm -hmm. But Yale Divinity School has not tried it until we were required to do so when COVID broke out. Now we see this is an exciting landscape. We can help students build their capacities and hone their skills, exegetical, theological, pastoral, homiletical, for connecting with others authentically and powerfully Mm. through screens. We also can use it for spiritual community building with so many folks who might not have been able to come to a worship service at night or to attend a certain class early in the morning because of health challenges or care of young children or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So we find this a really thrilling new set of possibilities in remote teaching for building the capacity of our students to minister within this COVID pandemic and beyond. In the church, we've had to go to remote worship, which is um, wrenching Mm -hmm. and also beautiful. Mm. Um, We've lost so much, we can't sing hymns together. It's Mm -hmm. too dangerous to sing right now in the same space together. On the other hand, live-streamed worship can reach folks who couldn't get to worship before. Mm -hmm. So that is a beautiful benefit. At St. John's, we had an average Sunday attendance pre-COVID in 2019 of 160 people at three services. Live-streamed worship, um, we were getting 80 attendees in March, and now it's much lower. Mm. So there is a real cost to my church, and I know to churches across the country, um, who, when people who need to be present with their friends need to walk up to the altar for communion, sing together, pray mm. together, mm-hmm. find that a screen is alienating. On the bright side of this, the beautiful new landscape that spreads before us um, allows us to worship at many churches, even several on a single Sunday. I go to, as it were, I go to St. John's, Then I go to the Episcopal National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And finally, I attend Alfred Street Baptist Church Mm. in Alexandria, Virginia, Hmm. all from the comfort of my home, and it has enriched me immeasurably. Well, Carolyn, this is All Saints Sunday, and your sermon is based on the gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 5, the beloved Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Would you read it for us? 
Absolutely. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This text is a favorite. It's even memorized by some people. But what Jesus says here must have been shocking to his listeners, and we lose that. What do you think? It is a shocking text. When we think about it as an eschatological vision, oh, they'll be blessed Mm -hmm. later in heaven when Jesus comes again, perhaps. Then we lose the force of the teaching here. Jesus is saying... These folks who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who hunger and thirst for justice, these folks are blessed right now Mm. in the conditions of oppression and deprivation in which they live. That is shocking. That dismantles (laughs) our calculus of doing well means being favored by God. It is radical, and it dismantles our other priorities, such as I don't know, goals driving capitalism and the accumulation of personal wealth. We know in Scripture, and we know for the Gospel of Matthew, God is a liberating God for believers and for communities and for all Israel historically. Hmm. We don't hope for salvation only in future, only eschatologically. And here I do draw on liberation theology Our God is a God of grace and fidelity for the poor, for prisoners, for the hungry, Mm -hmm. right now. And Jesus invites us to see that and to go forward into ministry with that deep core conviction about who God is and who we're called to be. And I have kind of a textual question for you. Matthew starts out saying that Jesus sees the crowds, goes up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them. So what do you think? Is he teaching to the whole crowds here or just to the disciples close by? A wonderful question (laughs) that has enlivened scholarly debate around Matthew for many, many years. Here's what I think. Jesus has gone up the mountain, away from the crowds with their needs and their anguish, 
and in the Beatitudes is teaching the disciples about ministry and mission Hmm. with regard to all who long for healing and justice. But on another level, we, the readers, are hearing this great discourse, identifying with the disciples, maybe identifying with those in the crowd Mm -hmm. as well. We're being instructed about the joyous burdens and costs of discipleship. Verse 11 makes that clear. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you. That persecution would be directed at disciples witnessing to Christ Mm -hmm. in the Roman Empire. So, on one level, this is absolutely directed to the disciples, showing them ministry, mission, and the costs of discipleship. But then, Jesus' discourse unfolds into a much broader teaching of general spiritual principles Mm. and exhortations directed to all the people, to the crowds. Whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. That's Matthew 6, verse 2. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume. 619. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. 7 verse 1. And clearly the crowds are listening. Mm -hmm. The end of Jesus' discourse says, Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching. So there's this seamless shift from Jesus speaking to the disciples about Mm -hmm. the crowds Mm -hmm. in the Beatitudes to teaching the crowds, and that is precisely the motivation for two points I make in my sermon. First, the crowds are themselves the sign of what the disciples are to learn about the kingdom of heaven. They are the lesson Jesus is teaching. They are blessed. But also a second point, the disciples are being formed to position themselves in solidarity with the crowds. They're being formed to live with the crowds, Mm. to yearn with the crowds for the kingdom of Mm. heaven. So it's both. Jesus is (laughs) talking to the disciples at the beginning, and it becomes about the crowds and to the crowds, Mm. as well as, of course, an invitation to all of us gathered around the amazing Gospel of Matthew. Carolyn, your sermon is entitled Witnesses to the Kingdom. Thanks for sharing it with us. It's been a joy. On the holy day of all saints... It is our joy to sit at Jesus' feet as he speaks of the kingdom of heaven. In the Gospel of Matthew, our Savior's first discourse is the Sermon on the Mount, a foundational teaching in which Jesus shows his disciples the radical good news of blessing for all who struggle. Jesus has been traveling in Galilee. Word is, He's curing every affliction and illness the people have. Folks in village after village have come out to see for themselves. Smaller groups join larger groups. Soon, there's an enormous throng of people coming to see the healer from Nazareth. 
Parents with sick children walk next to elderly widows. At the edge of the road, some move slowly because of the pain racking their bodies. Here's a man who's been stunned into silence. Ever since he got back from the battlefield, he stares off into the distance at atrocities only he can see. Over there's a young woman, her head lowered in shame. Something must have happened when that Roman battalion went through her village. She won't meet anyone's gaze, but she walks on with determination. They all do. They want to see Jesus. Rumor has it Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Really? Cynics murmur. Not likely. The Romans have a stranglehold on the Galilean economy, and they'll crucify anyone who dissents. Be serious. The kingdom of heaven does not look like this. But those healings. Everyone knows someone who's been healed. A man doubled over from intractable pain can now stand upright. A boy who had seizures ten times a day now plays happily without those exhausting muscle spasms. A woman who'd been on her deathbed is now back to her old self, singing as she cooks for her family. Everyone who comes to Jesus has been made whole. Now thousands follow Jesus wherever he goes. Doesn't matter what he's saying. He's making people well. The crowds bring their anxiety and their pain, their tears, and their barely suppressed rage at the brutality of the Roman Empire. And they bring something else, too. The fragile hope that a new thing might be happening, something that could turn their mourning into dancing. Seeing the throngs, Jesus goes up the mountain, calling his disciples to come and see the magnitude of the ministry that lies before them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And these people, with their anguish and their fragile hope, they are the sign. The disciples look down the slope at the crowds. They can hear sounds of laughter and excited voices and a few groans of pain. Someone calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus turned to see who called to him. The disciples' eyes widen as understanding dawns. The lives of these suffering, oppressed people matter. Now, these peasants mean nothing to the Roman enforcers of law and order, jackbooted thugs who know only the law of domination— and the order achieved by forcing Palestinian necks under the yoke of Roman supremacy. The Roman soldiers harassed the people every day, bullying them, cutting them down in the street at the slightest sign of resistance. 
But Jesus is saying, the struggles of these people matter. Their lives matter. They've come out here to Jesus because they persist in claiming the healing that is theirs, refusing to be silenced by pain or crushed by poverty, refusing to be dehumanized by the Romans. They march with persistence toward the flourishing that is their rightful inheritance in the kingdom of God. Blessed are they, poor in spirit, mourning what they've lost, yearning fiercely for righteousness. Blessed are they. These people are witnesses, a great cloud of witnesses testifying to the hope of shalom, the wholeness that is theirs by right in the kingdom of God. Blessed, oh, blessed are they in every generation. And blessed are we when we follow the teaching of our Savior, Jesus, the Lord of life, who urges us to see the crowds, to see the poor and the oppressed, and to stand with those who struggle. Blessing means solidarity. We're called to resolute presence with all who suffer and all who grieve. These are difficult times. The COVID pandemic rages on, leaving tragedy in its wake. Well over 220,000 dead in the U.S. alone. Death stalks the land, menacing the elderly, those without health insurance, folks living on the streets because they're afraid of getting COVID in shelters. This cruel pandemic threatens every single person being treated for cancer, heart disease, or a lung condition. And we face other challenges. Decades after the Civil Rights Act was passed, the vote is still being suppressed in low-income communities across our nation. Violence against black and brown persons continues unabated, with far too many precious children of God gunned down by police or lost to years of incarceration. On this Feast of All Saints, many in our congregations will be worshiping remotely, singing the hymns through tears as they remember all they've lost. With the pandemic, social isolation, and the bitter divisions fracturing our public life, many feel like they're alone in a grim, apocalyptic landscape. Church, we have to share the good news in every way we know how. They are not alone. The kingdom of heaven has come near, and we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, throngs of saints who testify to God's mighty grace. I think of Augustine, the influential African theologian, who taught us that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. I think of Julian of Norwich, the English anchorite who shared her magnificent visions of divine love. Mother Teresa, 
Martin Luther King Jr., Oscar Romero, Paulie Murray, countless saints dance at the throne of the Lamb, singing the good news, amplifying the healing, justice, and mercy that are hallmarks of God's kingdom. Blessed are they, and blessed are you, saints of God, each and every one of you, sanctified in the struggle, blessed when you tell the gospel message of peace, and blessed when you teach someone they are worthy of love, blessed when you claim healing for every one of God's children, and blessed when you persist in trying to get to Jesus. This is our shared work of ministry, and friends, we are not alone. We are surrounded by saints, and we walk in the light of Jesus' promise, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray. Gracious God, fount of every blessing, we praise you for the magnificent promise we have in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in his assurance that those who mourn will be comforted, and those who yearn for righteousness will be satisfied. Pour your blessing upon us, that in all we do we may tell the good news of your healing and justice. In the name of the one who is mercy unbounded and love incarnate, Jesus Christ, to whom be all honor, glory, and praise, now and forever. Amen. Our preacher today was the Reverend Dr. Carolyn Sharp, professor of homiletics at Yale Divinity School in New Haven, Connecticut, and an Episcopal priest. For a free transcript of her All Saints Day sermon, Witnesses to the Kingdom, call us at 404-815-9110. That's 404-815-9110. Keep in mind that Day One depends on the financial gifts of our faithful listeners. Please send your donation to Day One, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. We're grateful for your contribution. This is Peter Wallace. Next week on Day One, I'll be in the preacher's pulpit once again to share a message with you entitled, Answering the Big Question. I hope you'll be listening. That's next time on Day One. Carolyn Sharp offers some final reflections on today's message, Witnesses to the Kingdom. Carolyn, on this holy day of all saints, you told us it is our joy to sit at Jesus' feet as he speaks of the kingdom of heaven. And here in this Sermon on the Mount is a foundational teaching in which Jesus shows his disciples the radical good news of blessing for all who struggle. Why do you think this is so radical? In this teaching, Jesus goes against 
every <laughs> parameter for success, well-being, flourishing, and being faithful, being blessed that many scripture texts have put before us. Mm. Here it is not about scrupulously observing the law. It is not about the abundance of one's life showing that one is favored by God. No, it's in the struggle, in the yearning, and as I said in my sermon, in the persisting, Mm. in the persisting, in claiming one's inheritance of shalom, that these crowds are instructive. Blessing works differently from the ways in which power is expressed and resources are seized in human communities. Mm. Blessing puts the last first and honors those who are not regarded as authoritative, powerful, or favored in human eyes. Mm. Thus, it is a radical teaching. Blessing is for all who struggle. It is not a sign of success in God's kingdom. It is the condition through which we approach the truth of God and God's grace in the teaching of Jesus Christ. Mm. And Jesus pronounces these blessings on all who struggle in various ways, as you say, and he declares the kingdom of heaven has come near. And these people, you said, with their anguish and their fragile hope are the sign. How do they signify the coming near of the kingdom? And how can we not only acknowledge them as Jesus did, but actually be among them? We know that Christian disciples are called to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. Philippians 2 tells us what kind of Lord we follow, one who emptied himself and became incarnate, became subject to the powers of domination and harm that wrecked such havoc in the Roman Empire, that continue to wreck such havoc in our world today. Mm So we follow and pattern ourselves on a God who empties God's self of power to be present in love and compassion. When people persist in seeking that God of grace and mercy, they are the sign for us of what God's Mm. kingdom, that is, God's empire, and God's kingdom God's family Mm. is all about. They are the irreducible sign of who we are called to be as followers of Jesus Christ. How to be among them will be wondrously varied depending on the life, the ministry, the vocation of each reader of this text. Mm. In every dimension of ministry, we seek to be present, fully present and authentic and compassionate with those who come to us. Uh, This might involve uh, service ministries among the poor, uh, helping folks get food, clean water, medicine, uh, a safe place to live. All those kinds of needs are vital to meet. It may also mean pouring oneself out in spiritual teaching, in companionship with those who grieve, volunteering for hospice or working in the Stephen ministry, a healing ministry of the Episcopal Church, no matter what we do, we are called to be present, compassionate, and proclaimers of hope Mm. 
in relationship with everyone who comes to us and indeed with every living creature. I am a passionate advocate of the rights of non-human creatures, of Mm -hmm. all the animals of the world, domesticated or wild. And there, too, we are called to be compassionate and to see them as a sign of the kingdom of God, inviting us to be compassionate and wise in our walk with them. If we don't have work directly with folks who suffer or ministries with um, those who are oppressed, we can build our own capacity to become wiser and more compassionate. Mm -hmm. Read a book like Matthew Desmond's Evicted. Learn about housing precarity and what it's like to be on the verge of eviction or to be on the streets with your family. Mm -hmm. Uh, Read Jan Sabrino, No Salvation Outside the Poor, and understand more about liberation theology's claim that God has a preferential option for the poor, chooses to reside with the poor. And when we do not stay proximate, this is Brian Stevenson's call Mm -hmm. in Just Mercy about incarceration in this country, when we don't stay proximate, stay near to those who suffer, uh, we are putting our own integrity and our own discipleship at risk. Mm. Carolyn, what's one thing from your sermon today that you hope our listeners will keep in mind in the days ahead? I think it's urgent to be as fully in solidarity with all who suffer as we possibly can be. This is what it means to love the neighbor as oneself. Mm. This is what Matthew means in Matthew 25, where the parable of the king saying to those at his right hand, unfolds. When I was hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, in prison, you ministered to me, or else those slated for judgment did not attend to the hungry, the Mm. thirsty, those in prison, and so on. It's important for Matthew, it's important for us as members of God's kingdom to be as fully in solidarity with all who suffer as we can be. The Beatitudes show us this is core to Christian discipleship and membership in God's kingdom. Carolyn Sharp, thank you for being with us. It has been such a joy. Thank you. Celebrating 75 years of ministry, Day One is the voice of America's historic Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on Day One and forever. Thank you.